You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1997 film, Life is Beautiful. So this is an Italian film. It kind of tells its story in two parts. Yeah. The first part we see, it's 1939. Um, It is fascist Italy. Mussolini is in power. And we follow a young uh, a man named Guido. He's Italian and Jewish. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of, he's a very, I mean, because this is played by Roberto Benini, And he, he, he kind of plays the same character almost in every yeah. movie. Very, uh, very, uh, very eccentric. eccentric, uh, expressive Italian Charlie Chaplin. Yes, very Chaplin-esque. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a very good uh, comparison. <laughs> very, he's going with his buddy, um, um Ferruccio, and they're moving into a city, and because he's going, he's getting a job with yeah. his uncle working at a hotel. Yeah, so they're driving into the city. They're all excited about it, just totally charged up about being able to move to the big city. I believe it's Naples, isn't it? I'm, uh, I'm not sure. It's northern Italy. Yeah, uh, Tus- Tuscany. Tuscany. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, so, uh, anyway, go ahead. So one of the, it's, it's it's very almost silent film as with some of the comedic uh, elements sets because the very first thing is. They're driving along, but the cars, the brake is broken. Right. So they can't stop it. Yeah. And they, they drive around, they get into a um, okay. bush or something, so they got all this uh, shrubbery and stuff on around the car, and they're going to keep going fast. They bypass this motorcade. Yeah. Supposedly of this uh, fascist uh, 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 politician that's going to import this town. But he's got all this stuff, so they think it's him, and he's, he's telling people to get out of the way. So he's giving his hand signal that looks like the fascist salute. Yeah. So people are just and they're all him saluting him back. back yes, and that's it. And around he keeps driving, and eventually he comes upon this farm, and this woman falls because she she was like trying to I forget there was bees or something, and then she fell off the thing in the farm and she lands in his arms. Yeah, she's up in the barn, up in the upper levels of the barn and falls literally into his arms. Yes. yes. And her name is Dora. We find out that she is a teacher in that town. Yes. And later on we see him trying, because it's always a bunch of comedic little points, so he's he goes in, tries to, he's trying to get a loan or something from this business, this one guy, and he's got some eggs he has a falling out with a guy or something. He's got eggs in his hat. He re- with the guy puts the hat, hat on his eggs head. in yeah. there, so he, he chases after him. Yes. He's getting on a bike, running away, and then he falls once again into Dora. Right. Literally runs into her. Yeah, yeah. she's. Uh, I think she's taking a, a group of her kids on a tour. Yes. If I remember right. Yes. Find, this is when he finds out that she's a teacher, and he's. You can tell he's becoming enamored with her, falling in love with her. Yeah. But you can, you can see just sort of on there's little bits of elements of that this is fascist. Yeah, you can you can see the foreboding. Uh, certain things happen. Uh, the one that really stands out. Uh, well, there's two that kind of stand out. One's more comedic than the other. But um, when he discovers that uh, 
um, the guy he's waiting on one night at the restaurant is an inspector, a minister for the Ministry of Education who's supposed to go to that particular school. Mm-hmm. He sees his opportunity, right? And uh, he realizes when he gets there that the inspector was there to give a speech on the racial superiority of uh, apparently the Aryan race, which was... Uh, uh, allegedly including the Italians. So he's got to improvise this thing. There's a big, big um, artistic rendering of uh, Il Duce, uh, uh, Benito Mussolini, in the background. And you've, you see there's a tinge of... He's, he's taking a risk here in doing this ridiculous speech about the racial superiority. and He demonstrates it by uh, pointing out his earlobes, and his belly button for the yeah. kids. The kids are loving this. They're, they're thinking it's great, and you can kind of see the officials and the teachers are not quite sure to what to make, what to make of this alleged minister from uh, um, um, Rome. But uh, uh, you can see, uh, even in that very comedic scene, there's an element of danger. And then a le- later on in the film, uh, when he... Uh, uh, He's once again waiting tables, and we we were earlier introduced to his uncle, who has lived in Tuscany all his life, and we see at one point that uh, some fascist thugs have broken into his house and damaged things. So that that happens relatively early in the film, but then a little while later, um, while he and his uncle are working this uh, very elaborate dinner. Um, um, I believe it's a celebration of the wedding of Dora and um, a, a fellow waiter says, something's happened with your uncle, quick, come. And they go out and they find that uh, the fascists have painted his horse, which he uses you know, with his cart because he doesn't have an automobile, um, green, and written on it, uh, Jewish horse, I think that was what yes. it said. Um, so you really are getting these, these foreshadowings that... Um, as happy and comedic as, uh, and almost idyllic as his life is, and he's finding his true love, um, uh, the storm clouds are gathering. Yeah, and there's even another scene with one of the guys who's the running gag, he's always taking his hat. Yes. And then he, he asks him, the guy just kind of gives a vague statement about these are challenging times, depressing times. Yeah. He tries to say, like, what are your political beliefs? Yes. He sees his two kids and he says, Adolf, Benito, stop that. Yes. What, what do you mean about my political beliefs? Yeah, so and he, that they already know what he's saying. Yeah, and Guido realizes I better not pursue that any further. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and he meets Dora, and then because then, you know he has there's all these uh, kind of happenings around the city. Like this one guy is always asking his wife Mary to give him the key. So he, and, he, and there's is all these other kind of there's this um. Dr. Lessing, and they always have this back and forth between trying to find out riddle, the answer to various riddles. Yeah, they pose riddles to each other, you know, and I guess Dr. Lessing has been in Italy for a little while. Another piece of foreboding, after one of their uh, interchanges on a, a riddle, one that perplexed Lessing, he says, you know, I, I hate to leave you, Guido, but I have to go back to Berlin. So we realize he's German. And then we, let, we find, find out later in the film that he's a German doctor that is assigned to a concentration camp to uh, basically select out those who will be used as slave labor and those that will be executed. Yeah. 
And he, but he uses all these things to somehow win over Dora. Yeah. It's like the marry the key. It's She's always, how do you know that? How do you say that? And this key happens. And then, yeah. you know, it's like, this guy's going to come over and tell me how long it will take us to have ice cream. Because he, the answer to the riddle was seven seconds. So he just goes up to him and says, seven seconds. Yes. That's, that's a great, yeah, that's a great train of scenes yeah. there. Just hysterical. She falls in love with him because Rodolfo is, is you know, he, do, he doesn't respect her, treat her well. He's a fascist. Yeah. And it's also implied that he's had extramarital affairs. He goes to brothels. Yes. So... Against the judgment, even though this is probably going to damage her relations with her family, she runs off with Guido at the end. He gets on that horse that was marked Jewish horse, storms the meeting, has her ride away with him. Yep. And then she goes with him to his place, and then we get pick up the second half of the movie. Yeah. I really like that uh, transition scene. You know, looks like they're going to have a happy honeymoon, right? And mm-hmm. Guido tries to find... Uh, the key to unlock the door into the main house. He can't do it. And while she, he's doing that, she goes over and walks up into what looks to be a greenhouse. Yeah. And uh, you think, well, maybe he's going to follow her in. But no, what happens is they transition to a few years later. And uh, Dora, Guido, and their son Joshua walk out of that uh, greenhouse. Joshua complaining that he's lost his tank, his toy tank. Great, great transition, I think. But yeah, it marks a very clear uh, boundary between the comic and the tragic in this film. So this, it takes place five years later. This is 1944. Now, at that time, because Patton invaded Sicily, and now the country was sort of almost split in half with the liberated southern part of Italy. Yep. And north, even if it wasn't in, in the Italian government, it was now almost occupied by the fascist government of uh, Nazi Germany. I believe it was called the Salo government. Yep, yep, time. yep. And basically a puppet government. And like fishy. Yeah, as like Vichy exactly, and as as puppet governments did, and as Germany itself did in conquered territories, uh, at this time they accelerated their efforts to carry out the final solution. So we're we're seeing the results of that as well in the film. Yes, now the anti-Semitism is getting more aggressive. Yes, they the um, gate the closer thing he has for a store. Yeah, a spray painted Jewish store. Yep. And all the stores around the neighborhood saying no Jews or dogs allowed. Yes. And his son is being curious about this, but he's always trying to play it off into, yeah. into something that's not telling him the truth. Right. So yeah. He asks about, why does that sign say no Jews or dogs? And he, said, and he says, oh, everybody's got a sign. This says you know, no Catholics or horses. And he says, I don't, you know what, I'm going to have a sign in my store that says no Visigoths or chickens. He's yes. always trying to play it off as something that's not as right. threatening or serious. Yes. And, then, and his son is probably about six years old, I think. Yeah, maybe yeah. even younger. Maybe like four or five. Yeah. And that's going on. And then one day, he's because he runs a bookstore, and he leaves his sons there, but his um, wife's his mother-in-law. Yep. She visits him, and she, you know she's asking about him. Says, "You'll see me soon," and because it's close to his birthday. Yeah. And so they're going back to the house. They kind of he. Meets him with his wife, and his son's always kind of getting on his son because his son never likes to take a bath or a shower. Yes. And uh, the Nora goes, and she comes back. The house has been ransacked. Right. And then um, 
Josh, Joshua, and Guido are taking on a train to a concentration camp. Yeah. And Dora finds out about that, and they're saying, you don't have to go on there. She says, no, you're taking me yeah. there. Too. She shows up at the station as they're loading people on these cattle cars. And uh, the German officer, realizing she's not Jewish, says, why don't you just go home? There's, there has been no mistake made here. Mm-hmm. And she very insistently... Uh, looks him straight in the eyes and says, I want to go on that train. And he, he first brushes it off, and then she raises her voice. He actually goes out and stops the train and allows her to get on that train. Uh, an amazing uh, display of love. Yes. Yeah. And so they're taking to the concentration camp, and once again, Guido is not telling joshua what's really going on you yes tell he's giving this elaborate thing about it's it's part of a game it's part of a game that happens to be a birthday present for him that's what he says because all of this happens he's taken on his birthday and uh because of his fascination with tanks he, he eventually tells him i know you're about to do this but um he eventually uh, uh cooks up a story to where uh, we're in this big comp. All the kids at the camp are in a big competition to win a full-sized functional tank, and we have to uh, we have to amass one thousand points to get to that tank. And he's using all this elaborate ruse to protect his child from the horrors of w- what they're living through, um, and he goes to elaborate lengths to do it. Uh, I think it's very effectively done. And uh, uh, at the same time, they had seen Dora boarding another, that other uh, car in that train. So he knows she's there as well. He's trying to find her. Um, but they've segregated the sexes as they did at the camps. Um, so he takes whatever opportunities he can to hopefully let her know that he's there and Joshua is there and that they're fine and, uh, you know, that they'll get through this. And, you know, there, there's that great scene, well, a couple of great scenes, I think, of him doing that. Um, one of them was uh, after he had arranged with Joshua to take him to the labor, the parts of the camp where he's laboring, where they're carrying anvils and putting them in a forge, Right. Um, after Joshua had discovered this, by the way, he didn't want him to discover this, but he did. And then he cooked up an explanation. We're, we're actually building the tank that's going to be the prize, right? But uh, so he says, well, look, he realizes he can't leave Joshua alone. It's too risky. At some point, he says, I'm going to have to take you. So he, he invents a story. You just have to be quiet, sit in the wheelbarrow, don't say a word. And we'll hide you at the work site while I work, and then I'll bring you back. Um but as they're going one day, um, and they're going by the PA uh, for the camp announcements. And the, uh, the man who's in charge of it, the German who's in charge of it, leaves for some reason. And he sees an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And he says, Joshua, quick, come here, come here. And they go to the PA system and key up that mic. And uh, he, uh, he, he 
he tells the princess, that's what he always called his wife. Oh, no, Principessa. Uh, yes, and, and lets her know that he's there, Joshua's there, and it's a very touching scene. Um, she's she's over at the women's side of the camp, and you just see her. The, the shot is fantastic. Walking toward this uh, 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 doorway where light is coming in with, with a, a look of just incredible relief on her face, uh, very emotionally uh, um uh, overtaken by the events um, he does it then he does it at another time when he has been uh, Dr. Lessing actually brings him into the uh, kind of the German officers quarters as a waiter right and he sees an opportunity there because uh, he's looking through the records the gramophone records and there's this Offenbach piece that figures prominently in in their relationship and in the film and he knows how much she loves that piece. So what does he do? He takes that Offenbach record, puts it on the gramophone, turns a horn out the window. And I love the way the sound is mixed in this part. Clearly a gramophone wouldn't have been nearly as high fidelity, but it's still, they, they, they give you the impression it is re, re, rebounding through the entire camp. And once again, she hears that. And very touching scenes. Yeah, and then at this around the same time, Fortunately, all the children and the elderly are being taken to the gas chambers with the showers. But as we've seen earlier, Joshua is always against taking a shower. Yeah. And so he's able to hide, and then he uses and he starts questioning because he hears other kids talk about, you know, they're being put in ovens, their bodies are being used for soap, and he's telling, oh, they're, they're just trying to discourage you from the points. And he's yes. there's this one scene we forgot to mention when the one of the soldiers is giving them the instructions on the camp and Guido pretends to know German so when he's telling him he's just telling him like the rules of the game so his son doesn't really know what is yes. going on yes yes and then eventually even when the ki kids are being taken to the chambers he says I don't see any more kids left he says oh they're hiding just like you you got to be super quiet right. he's always adapting and using things to keep up that yes illusion of the of a game being played yes and one time that Children, I believe, of some of the commandants of the uh, camp, people who run the camp, they're visiting. He says, look, they're there. They're hide play because they're playing hide, they're playing and, seek. They're playing yeah. hide and seek. So he uses that. Yep. But eventually, we follow along. He's keeping, they're still going, but it's close to the end of the war. And this yeah. is the part where the Germans are basically about to tuck tail and run, but they're trying to get rid of as many people They're burning as evidence, and they're burning evidence both in the form of persons and in the form of documents. You see that uh, both going on in the camp. They're rushing around to do that. And uh, uh, Guido and the, the men in his barracks realize what's going on. And uh, one of one of the friends he had, he had um, found there, you know, or so one of the friends in, in the barracks, they're, they're looking out the window at this going on. And he basically says, whatever you do, do not get on one of those trucks because they're taking, taking the people in the trucks and they're killing them. Um, so he realizes uh, that if his wife is al alive, that he needs to prevent that from happening. So we see Guido, once again, uh, at one and the same time comically, but very bravely, um, going back to Joshua, who's hiding in that box and saying, I need your sweater. Um, so he takes a sweater, he takes another piece of cloth and makes what looks to be a skirt out of it. And then he puts something on his head to hide the fact that he's, he's got a man's haircut, right? And he makes his way over to the women's portion of the camp, hopefully to find Dora. 
and he doesn't. And as he is, uh, uh, the scene show, showing his disappointment as he's about to make his way back out out of that portion of the camp, he does one of these very chaplain-esque things um, that he had done earlier. He climbs the side of a building and then kind of pulls himself up, thinking that he will just avoid the spotlight that's been used, um, and it catches his butt, basically, in the, the Urzat skirt that he was wearing, and then the spotlight goes back to him. He has finally been caught. And uh, a, a German uh, a German guard runs over and makes him come down, and he thinks he's going to be shot, um, and then uh, a German officer comes over and says, no, 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 uh, it's not translated in the, in the uh, subtitles. But he says, no, 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 don't do it here. Take him over somewhere else and do it. So tra- this is just the heartrending yeah, part of this scene, uh, this movie. Um, so he, he takes him and, and Guido realizes he's going to be going past that uh, box that his son is hiding in. And we see... Joshua looking through the slit there and Guido knows it's key that he doesn't uh, do anything by accident that will make Joshua come out Mm -hmm. because he knows Joshua just needs to stay in there and he even tells him stay in there until you don't hear anything or see any people only then can you come out then you will have won the game because he knows they're clearing out this camp and uh, if he does do that, he stands a decent chance of surviving. So he's walking by with the guard, you know, behind him with the rifle aimed at his back. And he looks over and he winks and he does a goofy walk that he had done earlier. And uh, Joshua thinks it's part of the game yeah. and he laughs. And then uh, the guard takes Guido uh, another 50 yards distance or so. They they turn a right around a corner in the building and you hear machine gun fire. Um, yeah. Oh my God. That part of the movie. And, and then uh, uh, the end of the movie, I, I, I don't have any trouble admitting I, I cried. Oh yeah. Yeah. This yeah. definitely gets you at the end. Yes. Yeah, it, so it, the kid survives and it's the yes. Americans are liberating the camp. And what do we see? Yeah, a tank. a tank comes around the corner. And it's for him, and he rides on the tank with him, and then yeah. he, re- he finds his mother. Yeah, he thinks he's won the contest yes. because the contest was was supposed to be that the recipient was going to get a full functional tank. And this American says, hey, boy, how are you doing? Looks like you need a lift. And he picks him up, and he puts him on the tank, and you're, you're feeling pretty good for Joshua. It, it's... it's uh, he survived, and it's horrible that he's lost his dad. And you think he's lost his mom, too. But then there, uh, the tank is driving down a road where uh, refugees are walking from the camp are walking on both sides of that road. And then um, and he and the, the American are talking. And then he looks over, and you hear him say, Mama! Mm-hmm. His mom is there. And uh, the American helps him down the tank. And he runs over to his mom. And then they over, I, I think the, uh, the uh, voiceover yes, is quite effective. Yeah, it's his son, and he's now grown up. And he says, I would never, I'll never forget what my father did for me. Yeah. And that's the movie. And that's the movie. Yeah. It's, it, this was a huge hit. 
Yep. I mean, it's, there's always a couple handful of foreign films that cross over. Even for people who don't watch a lot of foreign films, this is one of them. Yeah. And, but it's because I think because it comes when it comes to the Holocaust in movies, it's always a very touchy subject. Obviously. Yes, obviously. Yeah. Like you were talking about it earlier, Mel Brooks, a man known for comedy, he's Jewish, did not like this movie. Yeah. And there were a lot of critics who said. It's making too much light of the Holocaust. It's, you know, you, you can't take the Nazis seriously. Some people were comparing it to, like, the camp commanders of the, and Hogan's heroes. Yeah. That kind of, they're go- almost goofy, and that he's a la- able to pull off this goofy, elaborate stuff. And it wasn't j- even just, not even the comedic. Um, yeah. Um, there were a, I think Ebert, Ebert liked it. He gave it a really good review. But he said a lot of film critic friends of his who uh, leaned his way politically thought it was insulting. Yeah, because they even said like when um, Benini was making this movie because Benini is not Jewish. They said yeah. if you are not Jewish, you shouldn't make this movie. Yeah, yeah. And then on the other hand, you had people that uh, were more open to it and mm-hmm. thought. Um, but but it, it, that brings up a, a very interesting um, uh, thing about controversial movies in general, and in particular contra- controversial movies that uh, are comedic. And in some way or another, are set in tragic times like this. Um, what's from what I recall, what Mel Brooks said, which was kind of interesting. I don't know if I entirely agree with it, but he said, "You know, it's okay to make fun of Hitler, the person, um, and uh, uh, Nazis in, in a kind of general sense, as long as you're picking on the leadership. But it, it gets too close and personal." if you're trying to make a comedy out of what happened in the prison camps and the uh, uh, death camps, um, that, he thought, crosses a line. Now, it's, it's hard to argue against that. I mean, and it, it's difficult to do it from a, a, the perspective of a Gentile, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a similar way, it, it's sometimes hard to understand the perspective or criticize the perspective of, of black Americans when it comes to something like slavery. Um, you have to, you have to, you have to allow all that. I think that's the uh, morally decent thing to do. Um, at the same time, and I guess because I found myself very moved by this film, I think it also teaches a lesson that um, I think uh, Roberto, how do you say his last name? Benini. That I think Roberto Benini's uh, father wanted to get across to him, but also uh, the person who wrote the novel that inspired this film. The, the name of the novel was "In the End, I Beat Hitler," uh, and it, it was an Italian Jew that wrote this book, Rubino Salmoni, and that. <laughs> novel i haven't read it i've tried to find it but uh from all accounts it's it's kind of a black comedy and uh he says somewhere in there and when he was interviewed uh, after having released the book said the best revenge i could possibly get is having the life i had and he lived into the 90s so he uh from that insider's perspective um um I think understood the power that can be uh, um, utilized 
via the tool of comedy to make a point uh, about the horrendous nature of the Holocaust, but also about kind of the, the, the positive side of human um, decency and morality. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the message of this film. Guido uh, has a very tough situation and a very massive responsibility on his hands, something that none of us would want to have. He's, 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 he's responsible, obviously, for his son, but he also realizes that there's a very good chance that his son is going to die in this camp with him. And he has a tough choice to make. I can either be completely honest with him and have him live in abject terror for the balance of his life and probably reduce his chances of survival, slim as they are. Or I can go through this very elaborate hoax, mentally and emotionally protect him from the horrors that surround him, and perhaps increase his chance of survival. What should I do? And what does he do? He injects, as the title of the film suggests, beauty and, as it were, joy into this most extreme circumstance. Um, He's able not only to shield his son, but to put him in a position where he will survive it, not just physically, but emotionally. And I think that's what he's referring to at the end uh, about when he, when he talks about his, his father's greatest gift to him. It's not just his life. It's the fact that he was able to get out of this horrible circumstance emotionally and morally intact, not ruined by the experience. And obviously reuniting with his mother as well. And this kind of response to the concentration camp experience is one you find uh, reported many times by people that have survived. A great example, well, two, two great examples. One, Viktor Frankl, a famous psychologist who uh, um, survived Auschwitz and two or three other camps. Um, uh, he found the, found the experience transformative, and it, it led him on a uh, uh, path of service to others for the rest of his life, and in a way he was thankful for the experience. As paradoxical as that sounds. Another guy by the name of Primo Levi, who wrote a lot about the experience and other things. This guy was kind of a polymath. He, he knew something about everything. Wrote a great book on introducing chemistry. Um, he too found it transformative. And in a way, paradoxically, maybe even perversely, a gift. So I think that's part of what's being um, uh, portrayed here. The human resiliency and the ability to take anything, adapt to it, and turn it into something beautiful, even the most horrific experience in your life. Now, uh, having said all that, it's still treading on very thin ice to do a comedy set in a concentration camp. Um, and you can completely understand the, the bivalent attitudes that people have toward the film. Um, but uh, 
as an illustration of that human capacity and the and the deep bonding between father and son and mother family bonding and how they're able to adopt adapt themselves even in the most cruel circumstances and leading up to it in in italy on that day-to-day basis dealing with the anti-semitism it shows human strength uh so on balance, you can tell I like this film. <laughs> yes, and I, I, I yeah. do agree, but to play a little bit of devil's advocate for the people who don't appreciate this movie, I wonder if one of the things, if they make it the Holocaust not seem as bad as, well, they were. he was able to outsmart them. Yeah. He, you know, he heck, he was able to sneak into the uh, radio and broadcast, and they were never able to catch him or find yeah. out what was going on. Yes. People wonder... So if that was real life, they probably would have been found and they would have been killed. And yeah. He wouldn't have been able to pull off this. Ruse. Yes, yes, yes. And, then, and, and you can't gainsay that. That's that's correct. They had they had to, um, uh, as is inevitable in any any film. They they had to water down the experience to a certain extent. That's even true in something like Schindler's List. I mean, it's it's watered down to some extent. Um, a a. a true cinematic uh, portrayal of the horrors uh, would at the very least require the people that are in the film to starve themselves, right? And get to that point where they're literally walking skeletons. You can't do that, obviously. Um, So any cinematic representation is going to water it down to some extent. So then the question becomes what's more important uh, in terms of uh, uh, keeping the historical knowledge of this kind of event alive. Um, do you do only do that through documentaries and uh, through uh, literature uh, and take a hands-off policy in regard to fictional portrayals like this? Uh, good question. Don't know the answer to it. Um, but... Uh, think you lose something if, if you do decide not to do that because you, you don't get a, a, a possibilities like this film and getting back to Charlie Chaplin who I'm assuming uh, Mel Brooks would have approved of or did approve of because he was making fun of Hitler in particular um, and he taught you in The Great Dictator which you're talking yeah, about he yeah. even brought up concentration camps and yep. the ghettos and we weren't yeah. even at war with them yet right and and there was criticism of charlie chaplin back then for doing that film um nevertheless it served a good purpose it it it, it uh made sure that people that maybe perhaps didn't follow the news that closely but were more in tune with popular culture and films were aware of what was going on and i think there's a, a function in fiction for for precisely this kind of thing. We, we find works of fiction dealing with controversial topics in history in all periods, of, dealing with all periods of history. So uh, it's not unique that we do this in ter- with regard to the Holocaust. And um, I, again, I think fictional representations serve a valuable purpose. Yeah, and even you brought up a little bit about Schindler's List and even documentaries. Schindler's List itself, I mean, people might find this strange, but it was, people said it was making somewhat light, not a comedic way, but yeah. melodramatic, a toned-down Spielberg schmaltzy portrayal of the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the big critics was Claude Landsman, who did the nine-hour documentary show about the Holocaust. And mm-hmm. He said it was a kitschy melodrama, and... 
one other filmmaker was because one of the scenes in Schindler's List that got a lot of criticism they're at Auschwitz the women are being taken to the showers and they are being afraid because they think it's the gas chamber but then water comes out of the showers and they realize oh they are just taking a shower yeah. he was criticized for that for a cheap suspense build up for things that actually happened right. so it, that you know when you do a holocaust movie it is always that line of even comedies there was recently um, Jojo Rabbit Mm-hmm. which is about a young boy in the Hitler youth who has an imaginary friend named imaginary friend Hitler. Hitler's his imaginary friend. He's talking to Hitler throughout the whole movie. Yeah. But his perspective tries to change when he finds out his mother's hiding a young Jewish girl. Yes. Yes. But it is, but when that first came out saying, "Oh, you're making Hitler goofy." You know, it's that's yeah. still that same thing yeah. whenever you do the Holocaust, even if you are trying to make it as serious as possible, Everything you do will always be under that microscope saying, okay, are you making it too melodramatic? Yeah, or, even, or too comedic. Yeah, or yeah. even one of the criticisms people levy towards the Academy is like, well, they all, you know, if it's a movie about the Holocaust, it's going to get a nomination because they love movies about that time period. It's almost exploitive. For so you always don't, it's always a very thin line of, yeah. like, well, and, that's, and it's unavoidable. Yeah. It is unavoidable. And again, not unique to this one particular historical episode. But a lot of historical episodes, I think, um, the history of Native Americans, I think, would be a good example of that too. Movies about Imperial Japan would be another. Um, there have been controversies about some of those. And getting back to Mel Brooks, uh, the producers, there was a little bit of controversy <laughs> about that film. So you know, uh, I think it's unavoidable. You're, you're going to have controversy no matter what you do. I think. And um, I, I guess I guess my gut tells me uh, erring on the side of uh, freedom of expression and the ability to make these films in the long run, even though you may get instances where people go over the go beyond the pale and do something that's in bad taste. Yes, yes. Um, even though that's the case, I, I think the preponderance of the films. Um, don't do that and in some way or another very fruitfully explore the experience and more importantly keep it in front of the public's eye because you do have especially in the case of the history of uh, uh, the holocaust you do have uh, holocaust denialism always always bubbling underneath the surface and that's around the globe too um, so it, it, it serves a good his, a, a, as a good historical tonic to that kind of denialism um, that you have films like this in the popular culture that remind people of what happened. Yeah, and even you talk about bad taste. I did want to bring up a film that was not made officially because the man, Jerry Lewis, who was making this movie, was afraid. He thought he made something so offensive I could never release it. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, people probably know this, called The Day the Clown Cried. And the, mo- the general purpose is that he was a Jewish clown, circus clown performer, and he gets taken to a concentration camp. And he starts bonding with the children there. And I believe somehow the ending, it's like the Pied Piper, where he's leading them to the gas chambers with his performance, yet he doesn't know it. And at the end, he decides to go in with them in the gas chambers. Wow. And it's never been released, I believe. But now that he's dead, there's a stipulation or whatever that next year or so it will be played at the Library of Congress for a certain number of people, a rough cut. 
But hmm. people who have seen it, oh, Harry Shear, who's worked on The Simpsons, he was also in Spinal Tap, mm-hmm. he saw it and he said, oh my God, this movie is so offensive. But then there was a French film critic who saw a rough cut and he thought it was very moving. So hmm. it is that curiosity of... Yeah, that bivalence, these reactions you get to these particular uh, films about this particular uh, historical period, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I did also cause bring up Italian history. Because mm-hmm. I was reading up on it, through Mussolini's reign, he wasn't as anti-Semitic as Hitler was. He's even made things like, we're not going to go quite that route with the yeah. Jews. But you see sort of now when Nazis take over and there was that splitting between the South and the North, and they are in control, you saw, and it bring up two movies that are more serious about this time with Italians. One was Rome Open City. Mm-hmm. And one I probably would not recommend to anybody was called Solo, which is a rep, uh, adaptation of the, a, Mar- a Marquis de Sade novel, but set during the Solo. And they do, I can't, I can't even describe to you the things they do to the people in that movie. Yeah, that didn't sound like anything I'd want to watch, no. Yeah, uh, the Italians have definitely, um, uh, I think they realize they, they have a lot to answer for from that World War II period, because uh, even though, as you said, um, uh, Mussolini uh, fancied himself kind of an independent and equal partner in the Axis, um, the reality was that he was a junior partner. And even though he may have uh, not uh, himself been as virulently anti-Semitic as Hitler, um, and I, I I don't know if that's actually historically accurate or not, but um, uh, it's nevertheless the case that he uh, bent to Hitler's will and did what he said or did what he told him to do in in, in parts of Italy um, and gave over part control of parts of Italy and did uh, give Jews over for extermination. So they have to deal with that. That's that's a, that's a part of Italian history that you, you know you can't erase it. No more than the Germans can erase the Nazi period. Um, so, in both countries, I think it's a very healthy thing for them to do to explore it in 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 their cultural uh, products, uh, be it literature, be it film. And you've seen a very healthy dose of that in Germany. I think they've done a good job with it. And, and, and as this film demonstrates in Italy as well. Um, and that thinking about that, it, it, it's interesting because it, it makes me think about um, Imperial Japan and uh, uh, subsequent films in Imperial or in Japan, uh, you know, post, uh, post-war Japan. Um, have they dealt as forthrightly with their own history as these two countries have? Um, you're more the expert on Japanese films. I'm asking you a question there. <laughs> yeah, because it is because you know this recently I did see the new uh, Godzilla movie, which is set in Japan post World War II, and World War II plays a huge part, maybe even more so than the original film, because it's a lot of because the main character is a kamikaze pilot, so a lot of that deals with that m- mindset of that death before dishonor. And if somebody doesn't do that, then they're a great shame. And it delves a lot into that, a lot more than I thought a Godzilla movie would do. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And in terms of films that deal with, uh, 
Japan's depredations in China. Have there been any films that seriously deal with that? From the Japanese point of view, no. There's been no. films from China, yeah. A City of Life and Death, and then the Korea's made a number of films about their occupation. We saw Battleship Island. Yes. I don't know if there's... From the Japanese, that. yeah. It's, 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 it's a curious lacuna, I'd say, in, in the body of... In, in the cinema of the country, which I think is reflective to this day of a difference in attitude toward what they did between Japan as contrasted with Japan and Italy, where you see they've, they've dealt with it in an open, more or less open manner uh, through films like, like uh, Life is Beautiful. All right, getting close to the end of my questions here. One other thing, getting back to more about Holocaust movies, um, this year, the, the main, one of the big films a lot of people are talking about is called Zone of Interest. And it is about Rudolf Haas, not Hess, Haas. I made that mistake. But um, Haas was the commandant of Auschwitz for many years. And the, it's in, from what I've read, it's entirely from his point of view. It's set in him, it follows him and his family, his wife and children. And it's mostly, you don't see much of the camp. It's mostly their house and this idyllic little house has got a beautiful little backyard and a pool. And it's more of them distancing themselves from all the evil things they're causing. And, yeah. One of the trailers I saw, it's a lot of that, that idyllic shots, they're swimming, they're having a good time. One of the shots is you see the mom, and she's got, dumps out a bag, and it's a lot of the golden teeth. Wow. So I, I'm, it's, it's interesting we talk about that. There have been films dealt with it primarily from that Nazi point of view. There was another one I have not seen, but I would be curious to watch. It was called um, HBO film called Conspiracy from 2001 and it's basically a, that the meeting of the Wannsee Conference gotcha. in 1942 which is yep. them wondering how do we go about doing these concentration yeah. camps yes so are those both German films uh, Conspiracy was HBO so I think it's American because it's got Kenneth Brown and Stanley Tucci in it okay and uh, there's German actors in Zone of Interest but I believe that the director is British so it might be gotcha. co- one of those co-international productions okay alright well those to that one yeah, look, looks like both of those would be very interesting to watch. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. The program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics of the Naval Warrior and The Duo Room. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode is dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. For our next episode, we will be discussing Stanley Kubrick's classic, Dr. Strangelove, so be sure to tune in for that one. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing Buongiorno Principesce.